Dealmaker Insights, the podcast brought to you by Reed Smith's corporate and finance lawyers from around the globe. In this podcast series, we explore the various legal and financial issues impacting your deals. Should you have any questions on any of the content through this series, please contact our speakers. Hi, I'm Ravi Patani, and I'm here with my colleague James Hatchard. Uh, we're both members of the global corporate team based in London of Reed Smith, and we're going to be presenting three episodes on the basics of contract law. The first episode uh, today will be on basics of contract for- formation, and the second session will be on force majeure and frustration, which has been an interesting topic um, over the last couple of years. And the final session will go over some preemptive steps that you can take in your contracts to help yourself when contracts may or may not go wrong. So let's get straight into the first session, which is, as I said, about basics of contract formation. Now, there are four elements that you need for forming a contract. Those are offer, acceptance, consideration, and intention to create legal relations. All of those must be present for a contract to be formed, and we'll go over each of those elements throughout this uh, episode. So the first item that you need, or first element of a contract, is an offer. What exactly is an offer. An offer is a promise to enter a contract on certain terms. So an offer needs to be specific and complete and capable of acceptance with the intention of being bound by that acceptance. So you need to make sure that the offer has all the information that you need, um, anything that's relevant to the potential contract, and it needs to be very specific so that someone can accept it and know what terms they're accepting. There are a few things that you need to consider uh, around an offer and when it might not actually be an offer. So take the example of going into a shop. If you walk into a shop and there are items on display there, is that an offer by the shop to sell you something? You probably think it is, but it's actually not. That's what we call an invitation to treat. The offer is actually only formed when you take the item to the checkout and go to pay for it. You, as the customer, are then making the offer and the shop is accepting it by taking your cash. Another thing that you may come across is auction processes or tenders. Here again, it's interesting to think about where the offer is actually made. Is it by the person who's running the auction or the tender? And are they making the offer by putting it out there? Or in reality, is it you as the offeror or the potential bidder making the offer? I think it's probably clear there that from the, the use of the word offeror that the bidder is actually the person making the offer and the seller is the party running the auction who's giving an invitation to treat. Now, an offer is out there unless it's terminated generally. So you need to think about how long it's out there. You might want to put in the offer that it's only there and capable of acceptance for a period of time. Otherwise, the offer will still be outstanding unless you formally withdraw that offer or the offer is rejected by the person you made the offer to. Another way that an offer might terminate is if there's a failure to satisfy a condition precedent. So, for example, the offer might say that it will only come into effect or be capable of acceptance if a certain event has happened. Now, at that point, if that event hasn't happened and can no no longer happen, then the offer is deemed to be terminated. Finally, an offer can be terminated by a new offer being made or a counter offer being made by the other party. In that case, that offer is deemed to be terminated. So when it comes to offers, make sure that you have all of the terms in that offer, make sure it's as complete as possible, and ideally have it all set out in one agreement. Avoid sending out signed agreements to the other party when you're making an offer. It's best to make an offer with a clean, unsigned agreement and ask them to countersign the agreement for you to then return with your signature on. 
That way you have the greater control over the contractual process. So that's offers. What about acceptances? An acceptance is a final and unqualified agreement to an offer. So a contract can only exist upon acceptance of an offer and the acceptance needs to match the terms of an offer exactly. Otherwise, it might not be considered an offer, but will be considered a counter offer, which the other party can then have the option to accept. You also need to think about how the acceptance is communicated. Often, the offer will make clear that an acceptance needs to be made and given in a specific way, for example, by email, by writing, or, or some other ma manner. And you therefore need to make sure that your acceptance is given in the right and specific way. You also need to think about how acceptance can be given other than through actually countersigning a contract. For example, acceptance can be deemed by conduct. So even if you haven't countersigned your agreement to the contract, if you start acting in a way which is in line with the agreement and you are abiding by its terms, you might be deemed to have accepted that offer through your conduct. This is particularly important when you're working with teams who aren't necessarily dealing with the contract themselves. So for those of you who are working in in-house roles, your deal teams might be out there abiding by contracts without having signed them and thinking that they haven't actually accepted the terms. But in reality, because they're acting and conducting themselves in a way which is in line with those terms, they are deemed to have accepted it. Also think about counteroffers and, and requests for further information. Presenting a counteroffer, as I mentioned earlier, that's a rejection of the original offer and so no contract exists. So when you're asking for more information, that can be deemed to be a counteroffer. So our advice for offers is make sure you only accept an offer when you're ready to, when you're clear on the terms and all of those terms are agreed. Be careful not to start performing a contract too early because at that point it might be too late. Thanks, Rami. That's great. So I'm going to talk about the third and the fourth items. So firstly, and the big one, consideration. As you probably know, contract law is based on the notion of reciprocity, i.e. a promisee, being the person to whom a promise has been made, cannot inform, enforce a promise unless it has given or promised something in exchange for it. The legal term for that something is consideration, and that is usually the monetary price paid. The most obvious example of an agreement that is not supported by consideration and therefore unenforceable is an agreement to make a gift, i.e. an agreement to provide a benefit with no act or omission being required of the recipient. When it comes to consideration, the law is not concerned with the adequacy of that consideration and it will not interfere with the bargain struck between the parties. However, consideration must have at least some value in the eyes of the law, even if it is not adequate. The parties can decide what consideration they want. And as some of you may know, a peppercorn has historically been used as adequate consideration. The more common contemporary equivalent of this is the sum of one pound. Consideration isn't needed if a document is to be signed as a deed rather than a simple contract. However, sometimes you may just want to execute a simple contract. And one way to do this is to acknowledge in the written agreement the existence of some token consideration. For example, the payment of one pound. This is a nice, neat workaround. So we're going to go for We're going to have a quick poll and I'm going to ask Ravi, which of the following constitutes consideration? £100,000? Yeah, that's cash. It must be. £1. Yes, you just said, even £1 is nominal consideration. A marble? If it's valuable to me, then surely, yeah. How about past consideration? Oh, that's an interesting one. I'm not sure, James. Is it consideration? No, past consideration is not valuable consideration. 
Good to know, thanks. So we'll move on to the fourth item. So that's intention to create uh, legal relations. So a contract cannot be made without a mutual intention to create a legally binding arrangement. Where no such intention can be attributed to the parties, there is no contract. However, in commercial situation, uh, circumstances, there is a, a rebuttable presumption that the parties intend their agreement to be legally binding. If a party wishes to rebut this presumption, it will have to produce clear evidence to that effect. So, whatever you call your document, make clear whether the agreement is intended to be binding or not. The clearer the better. If some parts are intended to be binding and others not binding, for example, a term sheet, you need to state this very clearly. So now we'll move on to a couple of myth-busting items, um, a few more questions for, for Ravi to help me with. So it is important remem to remember that apart from a number of exceptions, a contract does not need to be in any particular form. And so an enforceable contract can be created more easily than you think. So firstly, can a contract be made by means of the spoken word, face-to-face -face, or via some communication medium such as the telephone? I guess so, but I guess you need to make sure that you are clear as to what the terms of that contract are. Exactly. Although it can be made on an oral basis, a party may have difficulty in proving the terms of an oral contract if they are disputed. Thank you. Can a contract also be made partly orally and partly in writing? Again, yeah, I thought so, but I presume it's even more complicated as to knowing the terms then. Exactly. Yeah, not, not an ideal scenario, but it can be done. Can a contract be implied from the conduct of the parties? Yes. As I said earlier, you need to be careful about accepting through conduct. And finally, and potentially most relevant, can a contract be made via email or clicking or by clicking a button on a website? Definitely by email because that's writing. And I guess through clicking a button on a contract because I assume that you do that every time you buy anything off any website. Exactly, yeah, but clearly the key elements that we've just discussed need to be need to be in place there. But, uh, but yeah, you're right, Ravi, 100%. Well done. So we'll move on. I touched briefly on the difference between a deed and a simple contract. So I'll, I'll run through those, the main points there. But I think it's, it's a key distinction, especially for people in-house. I'm, I'm sure you don't want to get too many deeds <laughs> signed up given the execution formalities, so we can run through the, the, the slight differences. So a simple contract can be entered into orally, but a deed must be in writing. A deed must make it clear that it is intended to be a deed. This will often mean specific wording is inserted above the signatures, confirming that the document is intended to be a deed, and other references to a deed throughout the document. Under a simple contract, each party has to provide consideration for it to be valid. Deeds, on the other hand, do not require consideration in order for them to be valid. We've just gone through that in quite some detail. A deed requires additional formalities in relation to its signature or its execution for it to be enforceable, depending on whether the party signing or executing is an individual, company or other legal entity, signatures will require witnessing or more than one signature will be required. This has been this is the key difference, I would say, on a operational basis with a deed and a, and a contract. And it's much <laughs> it's it's proved difficult during lockdown and COVID times to get deeds executed. So uh, I have seen a, a general move towards getting as many documents signed as a contract rather than a deed. 
And finally, simple contracts have a statutory limitation period of six years. The effect of this is that a claimant must make a claim for breach of contract within six years of such breach. Deeds have a longer limitation period of 12 years. That's great to hear, James. Thanks for that update on and that reminder on deeds and contracts. We're just going to go over a few other helpful tips when you're dealing with contracts. These are the term subject to contract, the phrase battle of the forms, and having just talked about deeds and contracts, James will run us through uh, electronic contracts and signatures, which during COVID and, and the pandemic over the last couple of years have become more and more popular. But before we get onto that, I will run through the phrase subject to contract and the term battle of the forms. So you might have often seen the words subject to contract either on the front of a document or in an email and wondered why that's there. Well, it's there to negate that fourth element of intention to become legally bound and therefore to prevent a contract being formed too early. But you need to be careful with how that phrase is used because whether it's effective is a matter of fact and so it can't just be applied with the assumption that it will save you save you from having a contract being formed if in fact actually you're acting in conduct you're conducting yourself in accordance with the terms of the contract or you've accepted it in another way so you need to be really careful as to when it's used and how it's used as i mentioned they often put that that phrase subject to contract is often used in emails and you also need to be careful where in emails that's used if it's at the bottom of an email an email footer or, or something like that there's a risk that that phrase subject to contract hasn't been brought to the addressee's attention and therefore that disclaimer is not valid. It may not be sufficient and therefore you need to do everything you can to try and put that addressee on attention of the fact that you have not agreed to the terms of the contract and you are not intended to be bound by legal relations. So as a matter of best uh, practice we recommend putting it either in the subject box or on the top of the email and if there are attachments to that email putting it in or on the top of those documents as well. You also need to think about making sure you remove that phrase subject to contract at the right time. Whilst it might be helpful to try and claim that you haven't created legal relations, often you'll be seeking to rely on contracts. And if that word subject to contract, if that phrase subject to contract is still there, it may prevent you from doing so. So at the right time, you need to make sure it's removed from emails, documents, and anything else where it's any, any other place where it's contained. And as I mentioned before, you need to make sure that you don't just use that phrase without thinking about it. There are other ways to prevent contract formation if you don't want to use the phrase subject to contract. So, for example, you might put a blank denial of making an offer in the email or the document you're sending out, i.e. the contents of this email or document don't contain an offer that is capable of acceptance. You might deny the grant of rights. So you say no rights are to be derived from any, any proposal contained in this document and a license can't be deemed granted by us until an actual written agreement containing all the necessary terms and conditions are negotiated and executed by the parties. You can deny intention, legal intention, so the company reserves all right to take independent legal advice before entering into any agreements, or you can deny authority, which when you are giving a lot of different people the ability to go out to negotiate contracts can be quite helpful. So having a phrase in your emails or documents stating, all statements contained in this email are personal to the author and not necessarily the statements of the company, unless specifically stated. So there are some options out there, apart from subject to, using the phrase subject to contract, to prevent you from forming a contract before you really want to. The next concept I wanted to just touch on was battle of the forms. So what is battle of the forms? 
Where businesses are trying to create a contract, they might try to do so by incorporating their own standard terms and conditions. So, for example, where a supplier offers to contract on its terms and conditions and the buyer attempts to accept but tries to impose its own terms. There, there is no acceptance at all and that buyer is actually having a counteroffer which can be accepted by an unequivocal acceptance by the seller or supplier there or by performance. Depending on the circumstances, the battle of the forms can have four different outcomes. The first is the last set of terms apply, i.e. the last shot fired in the battle of the forms, battle of the forms wins. Most often, the last set of terms dispatched will be deemed to be unequivocal, will be the ones that are incorporated by the unequivocal acceptance or performance of the contract. The second option is other terms apply. That last shot doctrine I just talked about can be displaced if the documents passing between the parties and their conduct show that they intended some other terms to prevail, usually something that's set out in an email or other correspondence. The third option is that no other terms apply because neither party has shared or seen the other terms and conditions and neither can be said to apply in those scenarios. And finally, the fourth option is that there is no contract made because there's been no meeting of the minds and it's not clear what those terms are. If something goes wrong, the parties here will probably have to rely on the re- law of restitution for a remedy. Thanks, Ravi. That's, uh, that all sounds wonderful. As touched on earlier, you should be aware that contracts can be in electronic form and signatures to those contracts can also be in electronic form. Uh, they could be made through various forms of electronic communication, including email, website order and acceptance procedures, and even text and WhatsApp messages. As mentioned previously, the general rule under English law is that a contract does not need to be in any particular form in order to be legally binding. As Ravi helpfully pointed out earlier, it's often better to have it in writing rather than in oral terms. So the three questions which need to be asked when analysing whether a contract has been made by digital communications are the same as for traditional means. Are the key contractual elements present? Is any particular form required by statute? And finally, in the case of variations, is any particular form required? Website contracting procedures fall easily within the traditional offer and acceptance analysis set out by Ravi earlier today. Current website technology allows for an ascending scale of certainty when it comes to bringing website terms to the attention of the visitor. These include the following. There may simply be a link to the website terms on the website somewhere and a statement that the use of the website means acceptance of the website terms. Not the clearest. The visitor may be unable to proceed further without being forced to click an I accept button, which is close to a link to the website terms. That's a bit clearer. The visitor may be unable to proceed further without being forced to scroll down the website terms and then click an I accept button. Definitely the clearest. So I think we'll now discuss electronic execution, a point that has been discussed at length within, I'm sure, many businesses and certainly many law firms. I'm glad to say that uh, the Law Commission recently published a report on the electronic execution of documents. The report includes a statement which sets out the high-level conclusion of the Law Commission as to the law regarding the validity of electronic signatures and includes, among other things, a statement that an electronic signature is capable in law of being used to execute a document, including a deed, provided that the person signing the document intends to authenticate the document and any execution formalities are satisfied. There are various types of electronic signature, ranging from the simple to the complex. 
all of which the Law Commission would argue satisfy the requirements of a traditional signature. These include typing a name on an electronic document, a manuscript signature that has been scanned, clicking the I accept button placed on a website, the use of cryptography to include a digital signature. So thankfully, it's clear that electronic signature platforms are acceptable, especially for deeds, which has certainly made my life easier during lockdown. I don't know about you, Robin. Definitely. Thanks for tuning into this episode and tune in next time for a discussion on force majeure and frustration. Thank you. Dealmaker Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's corporate and financial industry practices, please email dealmakerinsights at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and on our social media accounts at ReadSmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.